Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? I want to start with a... Ooh. Help. I want to start with a couple housekeeping matters or something like that. Um, when I was 15 or 16 and first coming to serious faith, there was a little band called The Choir, a Christian rock band that nobody had ever heard of, especially in my high school. And uh, the drummer of that band happens to be the person that wrote uh, God of Wonders, which if you were around back then, you would have never imagined it being sung in every church in America. So that's kind of special. Um, also, uh, this is the first time Maggie and I have, have worked in worship together uh, since we were doing nursery, nursery, nursing home ministry down at Twin Oaks. So that's nice too. Um, thirdly, uh, I don't know if any, how many of you know that we have a, a media team. And so as per, part of pursuing that, um, I'm not real sure where my role is in that, but as part of pursuing that, um, we are doing Instagram Live. That's, if you notice, Lucy filming. That's what she's doing. Um, and also I tried to share the link on Facebook. So we may have people in our Zoom um, that you've never heard of before. So that's that. When David mentioned John Stott during his sermon last week, it reminded me of a story 
In the mid-90s, when I was at seminary, at Gordon-Conwell, we'd often have guest speakers at our chapel services. And occasionally, they'd be somebody famous, or, you know, famous to seminarians. So one week, we were excited to learn that Stott was going to be coming. So when the day came, I took one of his books off my shelf and excitedly headed up the hill. I don't remember precisely what he spoke about, but I believe it was some combination of John Calvin's doctrine of total depravity and Paul's declaration of himself as the chief of sinners, because the most memorable part was him saying, the truth is that I am the scum of the earth. Now that caused me a little bit of confusion because you see, I did want to meet him and get my book autographed after the service, but what would I say to him if I said, it's an honor to meet you. Was I just telling him I didn't listen to his message? Anyway, I stood in the long line afterwards to say hello. And when it was finally my turn, I nervously said, Mr. Stott, I heard what you said, and you might be scum, but it's still an honor to meet you. And he looked at me for a moment and calmly said, and you have to imagine this man's British, so he has that kind of British intellectual thing and calmly said, well, scum can recognize scum. <laughs> In these verses that Maggie just read, Paul might seem a little harsh. He uses words like futility, ignorance, and impurity to describe the Ephesians' background. But let's just take a second and talk about Ephesus. It was an ancient city, obviously, but it was a real place. Archaeologists have done digs and actually laid hands on these places and buildings we're talking about this morning. It's located about two miles southwest of a modern city called Selkuk in the western part of Turkey, directly east across the Aegean Sea from Athens. So it's probably no coincidence that its name comes directly from Greek, and the Greek word Ephesos, meaning desirable because that's precisely what it was. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia tells us that in its location near the mouth of the Caister River, Ephesus was the most easily accessible city in all of Asia by land and sea, which naturally led to religious, political, and commercial development. In fact, the notes in the NIV Study Bible tell us that it ranked with Rome, Corinth, Antioch, and Alexandria as one of the foremost urban centers of the Roman Empire. I'm not sure it's entirely accurate, but I imagine it as the Roman Empire's San Francisco. The wealth and importance it enjoyed were mostly due to its temple to Artemis, who, if you don't know, is the goddess of wild and natural things, that brought vast numbers of pilgrims to the city and employed many people making various idols and shrines to sell to these tourists. Maybe that's why the best-known story about Ephesus is a riot. And I don't mean it's funny. I'm talking about a literal scene of mob violence. And strangely, it's not even found in the book of Ephesians. It's from Acts chapter 19. Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, 
along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! You can imagine how that story continues from there. But for our purposes, Demetrius was right. That's exactly what happened. Precisely because Ephesus was in such a perfect location and had so many visitors, it was the ideal way to spread the gospel throughout Asia. And eventually, worship of Artemis did fall off so much that when the temple burned in 262, it was never rebuilt. You know, to hear that silversmith describe this town, it sounds less like San Francisco and a little more like Orlando. And maybe understanding that helps us picture this riot that was happening. This isn't about religion. The mob doesn't necessarily care whether the goddess is disrespected. But if their customers listen to this new teacher, it will threaten their livelihood. And not only that, but it could also endanger their life savings that's stored in the great temple and their way of life, since that temple is the center of their city. So when Paul offers this frank description of Ephesus, he's trying to shock his readers, enough that they realize what and where they came from. And remember the total lack of answers it provided. He does this to lead the Ephesian Christians to the main thing he wants them to understand. As many of you know, I work for CBD in Peabody. Before 2020, I worked there every day in an office on the third floor in a cubicle in front of a computer, just like so many of us, so many office workers. Now, we were a casual office to be sure. The CEO's regular work outfit was a pair of shorts and a polo shirt. But it was still an office. You couldn't go in there in a dirty t-shirt, cut off jean shorts, and a pair of flip-flops. Our standards might have been relaxed, but they existed. We had a written dress code just like everywhere else. But then COVID came around. And suddenly, I was working remotely from a desk in my bedroom. And an interesting thing happened to me and many of those I talked to, and maybe to you as well. Nobody was seeing me. I knew very well that none of my coworkers knew or cared whether I was dressed in a three-piece suit or a swimming suit. And so, little by little, my standards lowered until I began to simply roll out of bed, put on my jean shorts with the t-shirt I'd slept in, and get to work. I was only moving around my own bedroom, so there was no need to even put on shoes. I began to feel a little like Tom Hanks in that movie Castaway, the one where he talks to Wilson the volleyball. Why get a haircut if nobody but my family sees me? Why shave? 
Maybe I should just wear these clothes until they disintegrate, then put on new ones. Thank goodness for all of you and for the church on Zoom, or I might have gone completely feral. Now, this was all happening little by little. But in another way, time was also passing quickly. You remember it. What seemed at first like it meant a fun change of pace for a month, blurred until it became a year, then two years. And now suddenly, working remotely is how my department's going to run for the foreseeable future. But there's one more detail about my job that's really the reason I mention it at all. Once the pandemic eased enough that the company could roll back some of the protective measures, well, then COVID picked back up, and then we had to put it off a couple months. But once it eased again, they started requiring that we have at least one day a month in the building. Each department, which in my case is about 10 people, chooses a day for all its meetings, for having lunch together, and all the other face-to-face -face things that happen. And here's the thing. What used to feel normal every morning suddenly felt so odd and foreign to me that it took a little work to even wrap my head around. Okay, do I have clean clothes? Relatively nice ones? Are my shoes appropriate? I really needed Kathy's help the first couple times. I found I honestly needed someone to bounce questions off of. I'd forgotten how to dress. And some might debate whether I've ever remembered. That seems to be the case for these Ephesian Christians, too. They're surrounded by the polytheism we've just discussed. Metaphorically, they're wearing clothes that seemed unremarkable before they became Christ's followers. But now they're starting to get hints that these garments are not appropriate for this new life. But if Paul just tells the Ephesians to dress better, it doesn't really help them. They don't have the life experience the vocabulary, you might say, to understand what those words mean. It's like a person who just moved to Massachusetts. You tell them places are pronounced Worcester and Peabody, but they simply don't believe you. They can't. Everything they've been taught tells them that it, that's not at all how those names should be pronounced. They half think we're trying to pull some sort of practical joke on them. And I know this because I was one of them. I've heard this countless times every Christmas for the past 10 years. You see, I work now in catalogs, but when I first worked at Christian Book, I answered phones. And so every holiday, I'm forced to do customer service when it gets really busy. And since the company is in Peabody, almost every customer I talk to struggles with this tension. Seriously, hundreds of times each December. What's that place you're called? You're at called, they say. Peabody, I say. Peabody, they say, because it's spelled Peabody. And they laugh, and it feels like every one of them has the same laugh. Yes, I know, but that's not how it's pronounced, I say. And then they each say something unique to their region, like, well, don't that just beat all, or that dog will hunt, or my personal favorite from a seminary friend from Mississippi, smack my mama. Or maybe it was smack your mama. It doesn't matter. The point is, when you're not from here, it takes time to learn what's appropriate here. Think about what these Ephesians were hearing in the day-to-day -day world around them. 
At this point in their faith, they're the moral equivalent of someone standing in the middle of Disney World at one of those electric light parades and trying to remember what's going on in the office back home. Except they're not even tourists on vacation. They grew up in the middle of the theme park. They aren't castaways. They were born on that island. So they really need Paul to lay out for them exactly what they need to do to live in this new Christian world they've chosen. And now we come to what I believe is Paul's main teaching to the Ephesian Christians. These four verses are wise, but they're also a little dense and theoretical. Listen, I think you'll hear what I mean. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former ways of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I imagine them reading this part of the letter and saying, huh, what does he want us to do? And I think Paul realizes this too because he immediately restates what he's just said, but with more specifics. It's as if he's rereading what he just wrote and sighing as he remembers the actual people he's writing to, then starts over. Okay, here's what you need to stop doing. We don't have time this morning to deeply analyze each of these verses, but I do want to make note of three important words in this list. In verse 25, he tells them to put off falsehood. In the original Greek, Paul is using the word pseudos, which can also be translated as a lie or an untruth. I mention this one because it's the closest to a word or a prefix that we actually know and use. So it's easy for us to see the range of meanings here. We say pseudo all the time. If I start typing it in on Google, it immediately suggests pseudonym, pseudoscience, and pseudo-intellectual, which is amusing because only a pseudo-intellectual would ever use such a pretentious term. So we, we might understand this verse best if we said, get rid of the pseudo-truth and speak honestly. These next two words may sound a little more foreign, but I think it's important to understand them. First, when Paul says in verse 26, in your anger do not sin, he's using the word orgetsestha. Now, to all our seminarians, and Jeff, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's, it's been a while. Strong's makes a point that this term, meaning showing settled opposition, can be positive when it's inspired by God, but it is always negative when arising from the flesh. It even goes so far as to say that sinful, unnecessary anger focuses on punishing the offender rather than the moral content of the offense. This isn't so far from the way we use the word. I think they're just pointing out the difference between what we'd call righteous anger and something closer to revenge. And lastly, I want to focus on the unwholesome talk Paul contrasts in verse 29 with saying what is helpful. This is the word sapros, 
it's defined as rotten or overripe and therefore corrupt, and points out that such a thing would be of poor quality and unfit for use. Don't use rotten, unfit, corrupt words, but say what is helpful. And maybe it's not too much of a stretch to see this verse as the flip side of what David was telling us last week about coming to worship looking to be edified, not with a critical heart that just listens for mistakes. But we're not Ephesian Christians. We don't live in a town dedicated to worshiping Artemis. Not even one of us has a job making idols. So what does all of this have to do with us? Well, I can't speak for you, but frankly, as I read Paul's list, it makes me, for, me, <laughs> makes me feel more than a little guilty, just like I'm sure it's designed to. Steal no longer, but do something useful with your hands. Put off falsehood. Okay. I think I can handle those. In your anger, do not sin. Um, Kathy might have something to say about that. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. Uh-oh. Get rid of bitterness, rage, along with every form of malice. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving, just like God forgave you. By that point, I'm like, oh, come on. How can anybody do this? But that's exactly the point. None of us can. We can see our clothes are dirty and ragged. We're renewed in our minds enough for momentary glimpses of how inappropriate they are for a Christian life. But without some outside help, we're never going to be able to actually wear the kind of garments that we need. Even when Paul gives us a specific packing list, it doesn't make it any more possible. It's like that old story about swimming across the ocean. I'm standing on the beach with Mr. Rogers and Michael Phelps, and we're told we can get into heaven if we just swim across the ocean, and we all start from New York City at the same time. Now, I've been swimming in some form for most of my life, but I wouldn't call myself a serious swimmer. But if heaven was at stake, maybe I could make it a mile or two before I was completely exhausted and gave up. Now, you might not know this if you haven't seen the documentary that came out a few years ago, but Fred Rogers used to swim every day at his local pool. I don't know the details, but that's certainly more swimming than I do. With all his positive energy, maybe Mr. Rogers could make it 10 miles. And Michael Phelps, well, we all know what a swimmer he is, with eternal paradise on the line, I'd bet Phelps could make it to 50 miles. Let's even give him the better benefit of the doubt and say 100 miles. And that would be amazing. Far, far better than I did. Much better than Mr. Rogers did, too. But the thing is, it's 3,800 miles from New York City to the coast of England. And the only way any of the three of us is getting there is for a boat to come along, pull us out of the water, and offer us a ride. That's the role of Jesus. You might be able to fulfill more of Paul's list than I can, 
I might be able to do better than someone who just came to Christ yesterday. But that's completely irrelevant. None of us could ever come close to being good enough to earn our salvation or clean enough to even stand in the presence of God's holiness. Two weeks ago, I preached at my mom's church in Acton because their pastor's been sick. And in the time leading up to that, she said to me more than once, I think trying to be supportive, oh, the minister who was here last week used a lot of big words. In case that's what you also remember from sermons, what we're really talking about here is the idea of substitutionary atonement. If anybody who's not here this morning asks you what I preached about, definitely don't relate the stories I told. Tell them, oh, he spoke to us of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement as it related to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Now, if you listen to many preachers, you might be thinking at this point, wow, are we going to get through a whole sermon without a C.S. Lewis quote? <laughs> Good one. Of course you're not. Lewis discusses this same idea in his book, Mere Christianity, and states it as only he can. I have been talking as if it were we who did everything. In, in reality, of course, it is God who does everything. We, at most, allow it to be done to us. The three-personal God, so to speak, sees before him, in fact, a self-centered, greedy, grumbling, rebellious human animal. But he says, let us pretend that this is not a mere creature, but our son. It is like Christ insofar as it is a man, for he became man. Let us pretend that it is also like him in spirit. This idea of a divine make-believe sounds rather strange at first, but is it so strange, really? Isn't that how the higher thing always raises the lower? A mother teaches her baby to talk by talking to it as if it understood long before it really does. My prayer is that each of us here this morning can leave behind the darkness of the world's understanding, the futility of our thinking, the anger in our hearts, and the lying, rotten words in our mouths, and with Christ's help, begin learning to speak the language of heaven. Amen.